But you're on drugs when you talk about $4 billion. I'm not, I didn't Let's say be that. Tonight on The Machine That Changed the World, a world where information flows across oceans and continents, some of it highly personal. Why don't I have a computer? <laughs> Hello, I'm Endo O'Dowd and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Everything we see today is seen through the prism of online networks, but I'm trying to look back at the origins of these networks and the stories of the people who helped create them. And it's wild what's going on. You can send electronic mail to people. It is the big new thing. Anything goes for now because we're still explorers exploring brand new space and there's very, very few of us. Today, we live in a society that's preoccupied with highlighting individual achievements. But this episode looks at how two different companies came out of 1980s Ireland and ended up creating systems that fundamentally changed how we all communicate today. And what about this internet thing? Do you, do you know anything about that? It's not very user-friendly. It's actually hard to find what you want. And frankly, it was mainly a tool for nerds. It's a brief moment in time here, and then the locks will come down and the charges will come in. The revolutionary in me liked the idea that we were actually usurping the incumbent monopoly telcos, in this case, Telecom Aaron. This is Barry Flanagan. And in time, the businesses he built would usurp the status quo in Irish telecommunications and bring the largest company in the world to heel. What had inspired Barry's rebellion was a state-owned telecommunications company, Telecom Aaron, that was extremely outdated. There was huge delays in getting phone lines in Ireland, and on an almost a daily basis, ads would be placed in the Irish Times from various businesses, architects, banks, doctors and shipping companies, all complaining about how telephone lines were out of order. One from Merton Security in March 1985 simply read, quote, we don't know why our telephone line isn't working, and neither do Telecom Aaron. So, with infrastructure like that, there were very few opportunities in tech. I'd never seen a computer, and I left school when I was 16, because I didn't think that the educational system was going to teach me what I needed to know, right? And I decided, I'm going to trust my own instincts, and I'm going to, I'm going to educate myself. Barry saw the potential of online networks while living abroad. And when he moved back to Galway on Ireland's west coast, he wanted to build a company that provided internet services there. But this was before the World Wide Web. And any internet networks were almost exclusively for the universities or the US military. I just thought, you know, if this kind of technology was broadly available, it would completely transform Ireland. That, that we wouldn't, my children wouldn't have to leave in order to find an interesting life for career. Now, I was 20, whatever, 25 at the time, still young and idealistic and, you know, wanting to change the world. Radio Television, you're watching RTE One. As Barry was working to get the internet into people's homes, a French company with a possible solution appeared on a famous Irish TV show. Ladies and gentlemen, to whom it concerns, it's The Late Late Show. The Late Late Show was, and is, Ireland's longest-running TV show. It's a magazine-style format, where one guest could be an excommunicated nun, followed by an entrepreneur. This week featured Minitel, which had been operating internet services in France for 10 years at this point. 
Minitel launched in October 91. And that was a, a light bulb moment for me as well. I just I clapped my hands and said, yes. By telephone, they look through an electronic phone book, movie listings, or a database, usually on this type of terminal, 7 million of which are in service. The French government started releasing Minitel computers as digital versions of the phone book, and they soon gave hundreds of thousands of these computers away. And people innovated to using them for online banking, shopping and booking tickets. The world leader, France Telecom, is seeking to establish more partnerships throughout the world. At this point in 1991, the company was trying to expand outside of France in the hope that they could become an internet provider, such as Vodafone, T-Mobile or Sky. Along with giving demonstrations to Irish TV audiences, they also installed them in raves on the west coast of America. There's footage on YouTube of slack-jawed utes hunkered over these quaint computers. Along with these enthused ravers, Barry saw the potential. I just clapped my hands and said, yes, I don't have to worry about the network. I can just create services and off we go. But Minitel didn't catch on in Ireland or the US. And the head of marketing would later admit, quote, we did not create an ecosystem enabling anyone but us to make money. Barry felt this too. Unfortunately, Minitel turned out to be a dog. Barry, though, got over his disappointment with Minitel when, in 1991, an embargo on commercial use on the internet was lifted, meaning, for the first time, anyone could legally set up a business online. So shoved all my Minitel stuff aside and decided, right, now this, this is the network that I'm going to use. Barry used this to create his own BBS, or bulletin board system. This was like a hub, node, or just landing page where people could log on and interact with others. So I created Galway Online BBS, which was using bulletin board software. And I had initially just two modems in my house in Salt Hill in the dining room. And used that to, to just to teach me, because I, I didn't go to university. You know, I'm a self-taught kind of person. I needed to learn, but I also needed a way to demonstrate what I was talking about. A BBS node allowed people to post messages or share files and the interface looks something like an 8-bit arcade game you might see in a film. But at their peak, they were very popular, and there was estimated to be 20,000 BBSs operating, and some are still maintained today. There wasn't really instant chat on them, and they usually updated information twice a day. But Barry had a grander vision. Ireland Online was always the goal. I'd, I'd registered the name and all the rest of it, but I, didn't, I reckoned if I screw it up, I'm screwing up Galway Online, and that's, <laughs> that's separate. And so, after a few false starts, Barry had a suitable network and set about bringing Ireland online, starting in Galway. As Barry was trying to bring the internet to Ireland, another Irish company, Aldiscon, was hoping to bring mobile phone communications to the world. Today, founding an Irish startup sounds perfectly reasonable, but starting a cutting-edge tech company in 1980s Ireland wasn't such an obvious idea. It was a very different place. 6.30 on Q102, here's Gary Hamill with the news headlines. And the reports of a moving statue continued today after the ninth night since people began to gather at a grotto a half a mile, from, half a mile away from Ballyspittle in County. So in 84, when I came out of college, uh, class of maybe 60, 
I think 58 went abroad. You know, everybody was going abroad from uh, anybody who was with a technology background. This is Joe Cunningham, and he wasn't alone in emigrating. On average, over 100 people emigrated from Ireland every day in the 1980s. But, like Barry, by the end of the decade, he returned to Ireland, where he got a job with that Irish startup, Aldiscon. We built a company literally by going to Philips and Siemens, looking for the Irish guys there uh, and bringing them back to work on the projects that we were building. At the time, connections on mobile phones were poor and changed country to country. So, if you drove from Ireland into Northern Ireland, the connection would drop. The European Union initiated GSM, or Global Systems for Mobile Communications, which would offer a universal system for mobile phones to interact with each other and other pieces of technology. With infrastructure being unrolled across countries by mobile phone providers, Joe saw an opportunity for the Irish company he was working with, Aldiscon, to move into the market. We decided, based on my background, to build a management system for GSM networks. But unfortunately, just as it was about to launch, our project was killed. And was that not crushing, like? Yeah, you know, it was totally crushing. And it was, it was my idea, which was even more embarrassing. We had probably 15 people working out of it, uh, on it out of a company of maybe 30 to 40 people. That was a huge cost. And to be fair to Jay Murray, who was our investor at the time, what he actually said was, you know, it's the middle of the summer. We can't lay people off in the summer. See what you guys can do between now and August. And that's kind of what happened. So, a team of Irish engineers who knew mobile networks inside out were left with a summer without a project. And we saw a little service in the corner called text messaging or short messaging. And nobody was really doing anything with it. And we said, well, let's try and build something. We've got a team of people who've got these skills. We've got a bit of money left before we, uh, we go to the wall. So in 1991, we built a, a simple demonstrator that worked on paging networks because there were no uh, mobile networks launched at that stage. And every four years, there's a big telecoms conference in Geneva. There's a huge difference between demonstrating feasibility and a full-scale global personal communication system. Thank you very much. So in Telecom 91, in October of 91, we were able to show people coming up to our stand that you could type in a message on the terminal and it would appear on the pager. Now, that's not exactly very radical, but what we were trying to say to these nascent networks, wouldn't it be great to have a two-way messaging service on those networks when they launch? And that, that sounds really obvious to everybody now, but these things are all risks. So we were taking a bet that a little Irish company would be credible to supply that kind of critical infrastructure and then that the, the phones would be there to actually do it. In November 1992, Nokia released a 1011, which operated on a 2G system and had a memory for just 99 phone numbers. There was no colour screen, no camera, no Bluetooth, no memory card slot, and the battery lasted for only a 90-minute conversation. But it could send and receive text messages. Phone carriers, it turned out, did have one motivation for putting them in. The reason the carriers put short messaging into their networks was in fact not for people to do two-way communication. The carriers had spent a lot of money on voicemail systems and what they had found was if a person knows that they have a voicemail, then they'll make a phone call to retrieve the voicemail and then they'll make another phone call to call the person back. 
and all they wanted to do was drive minutes. So if they get, get a little message on their phone saying you've got a voicemail, they saw that as a way of making money. And that's what actually funded short messaging first. We kind of sneaked in the two-way messaging. They didn't actually want it. Um, so within the next kind of two years, GSM networks began to launch in 1993. These guys did come back to us and we then launched service in Hong Kong and Los Angeles and Bristol and various places around the world. And when people actually got the phones in their hands, not only did they get the voice and the messages, but they noticed that they could send messages to each other. And short messaging grew totally virally in these networks. It wasn't driven, it wasn't publicized by the carriers initially. People just found the service and used it. You know? The risk obviously paid off and text messaging flourished. Around the same time in the early 90s, Barry was trying to bring the internet into people's homes. My focus was always on literally putting Ireland online. Email and file transfer and uh, chat and, and those things, right? We wanted it to be the internet in Ireland. So I launched Ireland online in May of 92. I started on my credit card. They didn't know that I was unemployed and it was good for 10 grand. So I thought, right, that's your runway. So with this £10,000 on his credit card, Barry built Ireland Online, or IOL, and it was a website in a world of very few of them. At the time, I think there were about 350 websites, most of which were in academia. But because the internet was primarily used by people in academia at the time, Barry had to talk to Trinity College in Dublin to secure local points of contact to keep costs down for people getting online. At the time... Trinity managed the internet for the universities. I had to get a lease line, permanent lines, you know, rather than dial-up, from Galway to Trinity uh, to connect into their systems. So I eventually did that. So I had a local modems in Galway. And then I also put, I think it was initially four modems in Trinity for Dublin. So now we had Dublin and Galway local dial-up. Which is a big thing, because don't forget, in those days, a local call was charged by the minute. Right? It's not like, you know, it was kind of unlimited time or anything. Sort things out over the phone. Local calls under 15 minutes only cost 12 pence after 6, so call now. So if you're on, online for an hour, that costs you a euro. More if you're calling Dublin. Uh, so, you know, the, the end user costs were significant. And that's why putting in local points of presence was so fundamental. So, the local points of dialing into the internet help keep costs down for the end user and basically help Barry sell the concept of Ireland Online. 15 minutes of your time cost just 11p after 6pm and all weekend in your local area. Call someone now and say what you feel. By the time 95 came, we had 20 points of presence around the country. We had... About a thousand phone lines running. I think we were about f- maybe f- five thousand subscribers, maybe. And Barry and his company were well positioned for the internet's boom of the mid nineties. And a year later, we were up fifteen, twenty thousand. So we we're you know we were growing ten, fifteen, twenty percent a month for kind of two years. Ireland Online became Ireland's first non-academic internet service provider. And they also offered email and provided a browser. 
Browsers like Firefox, Safari or Chrome weren't free at the time. You had to pay for them, like licensed software. And the browser Barry used was Netscape. I'd been using Netscape. Like, we had 80% of the internet market, right? Which meant that Netscape had 80% of the browser share. Netscape came over to me and basically threatened to sue me and told me I owed them 10,000 euro and, and all the rest. And I, I chased your man out and I said, here, here's the deal, right? Someday, somebody's going to come and offer me a browser. Now I'm going to take it so quick and you guys get me out the door, right? And you, you'll have no market share here. This was around the time that became known as the Browser Wars. At this point, Netscape had 80% of the market share. But in 1995, Microsoft entered the fray with a very cringy launch that included Steve Ballmer, who's like a proto-Elon Musk, jokey shouting. How much do you think this advanced operating environment is worth? Wait just one minute before you answer. Watch as Windows integrates Lotus 1-2-3 with Miami Vice. Now we can take this... People on YouTube have made top 10 lists of the most painful moments of this launch. But really, the whole thing is awful. And the press conference would go on to produce some of the great dancing memes of our time. Anyway, Microsoft released Windows 95 and later bundled Internet Explorer with the package for no extra cost. I'm using the Internet Explorer right now to look at our homepage and web surfers can get there via www.windows.microsoft.com. I've got my own website too, Susie, if you ever check it out. They sold 7 million copies in five weeks. It was a huge success. And with a $300 million marketing campaign, Windows went from a 0% market share in the browsers in 1995 to 80% in the year 2000. It's been fantastic to see the support we've gotten throughout the industry over the last few years. Microsoft's ruthless tactics led to an antitrust court case being brought against it. But in Ireland, Barry brought them to the table and took their browser, but did so on his terms. We were basically like, you guys aren't going to get anywhere in Ireland. Really what you should do is work with us. And the next revision of the Windows 95 uh, CD, if you clicked on MSN or you clicked on the internet, we came up. And with Barry switching from Netscape to Microsoft, the browser wars in Ireland were effectively over. So within the space of two weeks, Microsoft had... 80% browser market share in Ireland, right? We were the highest penetration in the world. And as the internet took off in Ireland, it did so on an infrastructure that was vastly improving. By the end of the 80s, we had a totally different network. Basically a digital phone service from from coast to coast, you know? So we we had totally revitalized our phone network in the 1980s in terms of the fixed line phone network. At this point in the early 90s, Aldiscon were very well positioned, but were so cash poor, they had to do deals with their rivals. In 1993, when we were kind of desperate to get orders, we we bid for a short messaging service for Finland, Sweden, Norway and Denmark. And we lost it. And it was won by a Dutch company called CMG. But CMG didn't have a product. So they had won this big order from these Nordic companies and they had no product. So... We got the idea that we would try to sell them our products and they had no interest. So we said we'll design it for them. So we did that because we were desperate for money. And anybody looking at that today would say, 
why would you build a product for your competitor? Well, was one good reason just to purely stay alive. You know? It couldn't be easier with Speakeasy from ESAT Digiphone. Just pay and speak. As Joe worked with his rivals, telecom companies were working against each other to the detriment of text messaging. In Ireland, between Digiphone and Aircell, you couldn't send messages between the two networks, which was totally daft because the technology allowed you to do it. It was the carriers who didn't. When, when Aircell and Digiphone allowed messages to be sent between the networks, there was a huge growth in traffic, and that was the same everywhere in the world. You know, you can do more than just talk with Vodafone Pay as you talk. You can send and receive text messages with it too. And the other thing that drove it was New Year's Eve. People sending messages saying, Happy New Year. <laughs> we had these incredible spikes in traffic on the 31st of December every year. And to some extent, the traffic didn't go away because kids would send Happy New Year messages to their parents and the parents would suddenly start using text messages. They'd go, oh, look at this feature on my phone. And that, that was a kind of viral growth of how text messaging worked, you know. This viral nature took Joe to Japan in 1996. And although at the time, Europe dictated the GSM network side of the operations, how the Japanese would interact with this service would have a far-ranging impact socially. In 1996, we went to Japan and we said to the Japanese carriers, We've got this great service in Europe called text messaging. Uh, you guys should really do it, you know. It's very popular. And the Japanese said, we, we, we understand all of that. But what we want to do is we want people to be able to send photographs. We want somebody to be able to go into a shop, take a picture of a dress, send it to their friend and say, should I buy this dress? We thought they were totally crazy. And we launched that service in 97. And that was the most successful service we ever launched. It was screamingly successful. And that's actually where an emojis came from. It, it was a nice shorthand to be able to, to take a picture of something, a smiling face, a thumbs up of whatever, and put those alongside the more traditional characters. So emojis were a natural thing to put into the, the Japanese phones. Once we saw those ideas in Japan, we were very much pushing them back towards the European and American characters. You know? And, you know, they've become pretty much the lexicon of today. By the turn of the century, the company had scaled to the point where they were ordering an enormous amount of computer hardware. There was a time in the, in the early 2000s that we were Hewlett-Packard's largest customer in Europe. We bought over a billion dollars in hardware from Hewlett-Packard. You know? So that was the kind of scale that we were at by the uh, 2000s. Now, the craze for sending text messages shows no sign of abating. In fact, last month, people in Britain sent over a billion of them. Text messaging was huge at the turn of the century. This was before Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp. It was the way to communicate. And the infrastructure was built by an Irish startup. We were switching a billion messages a month in the year 2000. So to give it context, we were doing more messages per second than Google was doing searches per second at the time, you know? And by the end of the 1990s, there were two messaging products that drove 90% of the market. There was CMGs and there was ours, both based on the same design. So you're you to hand with for 90% of the messages that were sent by the end of yep. the century. Yep. Wow. Around this time in 1997, Ireland Online was sold to OnPost. 
Ireland's National Postal Service for £2.5 million. We sold to Post or on post, really, in the first quarter of 96. But you must have been making quite a lot of money at this point. Oh, you're making it, but like we had, you know, 50 employees and a lot of costs and a lot of the costs were front-loaded. We needed a serious cash injection. The next phase was going to be a much bloodier affair. <laughs> Ireland Online was then bundled with the infrastructure that Barry helped develop from Post and then sold again in 1999 to Dennis O'Brien's ESAT Telecom Group for £115 million. Is, is it right to say that what you built was sold for £120 million? Ireland Online was, a, you know, certainly a significant part of it. But ESAT were interested in the the nationwide network, part of which that we had built this this access network around. People at the time were kind of criticising Dennis O'Brien for spending that much on it. I, I never thought that he'd overspent on it. And then when he subsequently flipped it to BT, you know, it was a billion and a half they got for for what they had. So he did okay, you know. <laughs> Around this time, Aldiscon were also sold for £60 million and Joe was happy to get out. It was terrifying until the day we sold the business to Logica. Every day was, you know, you'd, you'd think, is this going to be the day that some big disaster happens, that there's a bug in the code we didn't know about and that the hundreds of thousands of messages we process a day were just going to stop getting processed. And um, I would get a call on a, on a Sunday night, which is a Monday morning in Asia, saying... We've got a serious problem in Hong Kong. We need you tomorrow. And you'd literally get on the plane and go out there. And we just kept on throwing people at the problem. And we kept on throwing hardware at the problem. And because the money was there, so short messaging was a total cash cow for all the European operators in the the 2000s. But that didn't mean that it wasn't terrifying for us, you know. For all their innovations, if you Google it or look it up on Wikipedia, it'll say that Neil Papworth sent the first text message in late 1992. But Joe and Alice were already testing text messages at this point. I asked Joe how he felt about this. Like, does that irk you that Wikipedia or the internet is kind of getting these things wrong? Not at all. No, GSM was a, was a tremendous collaborative project. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, even today with 5G, it is, it is quite incredible that all of these companies came together, the Ericsson's and the Nokia's and the Siemens and the, the phone companies themselves, they adopted a common standard and everybody worked together to make the thing work. You know, we were certainly sending messages in labs at the same kind of time as the guys in Vodafone were. The system that they ultimately built, that was a company called Sema who did that. It wasn't a very successful messaging system. It, it doesn't irk me at all. I think it's, it's anything that promotes that mobility has been really beneficial to the story as a whole. You know, we, we launched the first commercial services right around the world with, you know, real phones in the hands of real people doing real things. And that's the thing that myself and the team, I think, are most proud of. Today, WhatsApp is dominant in the space, but SMS lives on and had a huge impact across the globe. Short messaging will never go away. So when, when you've got a delivery arriving from UPS or Federal Express, you'll get a text message saying, 
somebody's going to be coming to your door dropping the parcel off if you want to change it. When you use your bank, often two-factor authentication, you get a text message. You know, a farmer in India can be using text messages to get a price for his crops. It doesn't matter what phone the person has. If they've got a phone from 2001 or a phone from 2023, every phone can receive a text message and every phone can send a text message. So we've got a lowest common denominator. Likewise, Barry's revolution with Ireland Online was also ultimately successful. He helped build a network that upended state control in the sector. I asked him how he feels about the internet that evolved from that revolution. I know it's probably a cliche now, but the difference between my internet is a, is a lean forward internet where you're actually, you know, two-way engaged, right? But what Netflix and, you know, all the rest, they're creating a layback, entertain me. You know, it's like television, but with more obtrusive advertising. It's not a constructive thing. You know, the internet should have, you know, been the end of ignorance and it should have been a source for good, the end of tyrannies and and the end of, of deceptions. And instead, it is a spout of misinformation, cat pictures, scammers, and that's not the internet's fault. The humans are some, some, somewhat uh, <laughs> lacking. You know, the internet reflects human nature, warts and all. That's where we are. Barry met a lot of resistance in the industry at the time, and his upbringing was tough. He was born in Canada and moved to Donegal at 13 after his father had been lost at sea, competing at a single-handed transatlantic yacht race. His mother died shortly after, and he left school at 16 without a leave insert. I asked him how he was motivated to set up a company, take on a semi-state body, and incur hundreds of thousands of debt along the way. Well, I think there's a thing, you know, when your parents do die, you realise that, okay, nothing is secure here. Nothing is forever, right? I mean, one of the things that I would attribute to my being able to do Ireland Online and to take those kind of risks is that I knew I had nothing to lose, right? Like, because, you know, to try something and, and fail and even to, to be, you know, I mean, by the time I sold Ireland Online, like I was half a million in debt. So what? Like, there are worse things you could lose. Right, I knew that. So, to me, I had you know, I wasn't afraid of losing anything apart from you know my own physical being and those of my family, because you don't know what's going to happen. Today's announcement to establish two IT hubs in Dublin with the creation of 112 skilled new jobs. 450 jobs in the digital economy. E-commerce investment company is going to set up a new global sales hub uh, of 400 jobs here by Regeneron. Today, obviously, Ireland is a hub for most tech giants. Undoubtedly, many are here for tax reasons, but also because of the systems and networks that underpins the industry. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. 
If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on theirishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, along with John Casey and Head of Audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Sheremisov.